0: Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Given the long-running and intense illegal immigration drama on the Mexican border, you might expect low morale for employees of Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Now the DHS Inspector General has documented this. We get details now from the Acting Deputy IG for Audits, Kristen Bernard. Ms. Bernard, good to have you with us.
1: Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be back.
0: And from audit manager, David Liu. Mr. Liu, good to have you.
2: Thanks
1: for having me on board.
0: And what you were looking at, I guess, primarily was how well DHS management is handling CBP and ICE people, given what is going on. Let's begin with the survey that you did. You got a big response from agents on the front lines. What did they tell you?
1: I, I just wanted to point out first, before we talk about the survey, that the survey was used in conjunction with our audit evidence. So... Um, David and his team did conduct over 30 site visits, and they were able to meet with just actually over 200 CBP and ICE personnel and and really witness in-person conditions on the border. Um, we conducted the survey to just better understand the challenges associated with staffing. We received um, 9,300 responses from our survey, and it really just went a long way to confirm uh, what we had witnessed as conditions along the border and just serve to um, confirm our other sources of evidence.
0: Right. It's probably basic, but we should establish the fact that because of the large numbers of migrants that have been coming and going, and we've seen all this on cable TV endlessly, that is a workload for the federal employees there on the front lines correct?
1: Correct. That is correct.
0: All right. And so what did they tell you about their morale and how they feel about the job? Is there a real effect there from this surge of migration we've been witnessing?
1: That's a good way to put it, because the health and the morale issues are are really the effect, that's the cumulative effect of what we saw from the conditions, the operational conditions that they're working in. We heard a lot about the burden of the unknown from going on details, in some cases repeated details, in some cases not having advanced notice when you would need to travel, and just the duties that they were conducting when they were at different locations outside their duty station. Oftentimes they were performing other duties that were different from their primary law enforcement duties. So I think all of these conditions combined just resulted in what we directly heard from them as low morale, stress, uh, exhaustion in many cases, fatigue. Um, These were really common themes both across the interviews that we conducted and overwhelming in our survey responses. And
0: what about the staffing levels relative to that level of workload? That's an issue, too. One of the reasons, fair to say, that they are working, say, overtime or working, I don't know, do they do two shifts in a row, that kind of thing, because there's just not enough agents?
1: That's correct. And I think we saw every possible combination. Let me first say that as the migrant encounters have increased, doubled in some cases, the staffing levels for both CBP and ICE had remained relatively flat. So what they're doing is um, supplementing the surges with details from other DHS agencies and from other CBP and ICE locations.
0: So, is the result that, as you said, sometimes people are detailed to fill out? Sometimes the people that were assigned to that job in the first place have to work overtime without choice, and that—that's the range of options just to keep operations from getting too bad.
1: That's correct, and we saw both mandatory um, details and, or voluntary details and mandatory details.
0: All right. And let me just ask this. Is one of the elements contributing to the difficulty of the job the fact that they're not dealing with factory output, for example, or producing something at a high rate of speed? They are dealing with, illegal though they might be, human beings, and they see children, they see families in distress, they see people fleeing horrible conditions in their own countries. I mean, these are not undifferentiated lumps coming by. But the fact that there's human interaction, that must be a real stressor, I would think.
1: It certainly is. Um, I think what we saw during the audit, definitely CBP and ICE are extremely committed. They're committed to the mission and, and they're committed to to doing this work. But day in, day out, Um, working overtime for prolonged periods, especially in a law enforcement environment, it takes a toll. And I I think that's where our studies come in. We were able to conduct some benchmarking across similar operational conditions and just confirm um, what those work stressors look like when you are working under high pressure, high stress environments day in and day out um, in dealing with those operational challenges.
0: We're speaking with Kristen Bernard, Acting Deputy IG for Audits at the Homeland Security Department's Office of Inspector General, and David Liu, Audit Manager. So this is an ongoing situation. Hopefully it won't go on forever, but it has had its effect. What were your recommendations to Homeland Security? David?
2: Thanks, Tom. Um, So DHS is kind of like the first point of contact for those seeking to enter the country legally or illegally, right? And so we try to make three recommendations for a strategic staffing model and after action reviews um, and better communication with the frontline staff. So in our first recommendation, we basically told them to look at a federally funded research and development center and try to get a complete full assessment of the staffing needs at the Southwest border so that we can find ways to strategically implement recommendations based on that assessment. Like you said, you know, they can't continue to work in this high stress environment and kind of like these new higher levels of immigration and use these patchwork methods of detailing and overtime, right? They have to kind of figure out what can we do more holistically to address this situation. So that was the first recommendation. That one DHS non-concurred with. They felt like they have staffing models in place. They believe that it would be duplicative of their current efforts and that they also don't have the funding needed to conduct this type of assessment.
0: Yeah, let me just press you on that point. You know, in some agencies, they somehow are unable to hire enough people to fill their statutory and budgetary authority. Are mm-hmm. they? Do they have greater headroom in the number of bodies they could have in those jobs? They just haven't been able to get them in to stay?
2: Um, so I believe on the data that we looked at, the DHS, like CBP and I specifically, they're authorized numbers. They have hired pretty close to it. um, Every fiscal year that we looked at from 19 to 22. Uh, So but at the end of the day, you can keep hiring as many people, but that's only part of the solution to kind of help manage the situation at the southwest border.
0: And there were a couple of other recommendations then beyond the, uh, the staffing.
2: Yes, sir. So we Because DHS started implementing the Southwest Border Coordination Center, the SBCC, that was fairly new in FY22. They basically come in and they assess the situation and find ways to maneuver CBP and ICE personnel to kind of help decompress any situation uh, or any capacity levels. Anytime a, say, a border patrol station or facility is experiencing a huge surge in capacity and having capacity issues. Um, so what we did recommend is take a look at the after action reviews, things that they're working on, because SBCC are working on ways to kind of help make processing go faster, find ways to decompress faster and get guys on the ground like contracts and vehicles to move. Uh, personnel. Uh, so that was a second recommendation.
0: And they concurred with that one?
2: Yes, they concurred with that one. Um, and the third one was basically just to find ways to communicate what they are doing with frontline personnel. Uh, I think that's a really important aspect because guys... are dealing with this every single day, it's helpful for them to kind of know what's happening and how to move resources around, and my general purpose.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Knowing management is aware of the situation and cares about it sometimes is not half the battle, but it sure is a contributor to improvement, probably, I would think.
2: That is correct.
0: So what happens now? This report is issued. uh, It's a pretty revealing report. I actually read most of it, and Congress must have an interest in this one, too, because ultimately you know, the solution to whatever happens in immigration in this nation rests on Capitol Hill. They haven't done much about it. Maybe they can't do much about it, given the makeup of Congress. But it seems like this would have wider reading relevance than simply homeland security management.
1: That's correct, Tom. And I think I think our key takeaway is certainly there's a lot outside of DHS's control, as you just described, but Really, DHS just needs to better understand the current immigration environment. Of course, there will be fluctuations and changes in policy, but what we're asking is that they be more strategic with their planning, their staffing planning, and um, adjusting their operations so that they're better positioned to address all of these issues that are affecting their law enforcement personnel.
0: Kirsten Bernard is Acting Deputy Inspector General for Audits, and David Liu is Audit Manager in the Homeland Security Department's Office of Inspector General. Thank you both for being with me.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having me.
0: And we'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the IRS CIO has definite plans in mind for its modernization funding. But first, contracting officers have a new rule contractors should worry about. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Love them or hate them, federal proposed rules have a habit of becoming final— And for contracting officers in the Defense Department, the latest acquisition regulation means they're obligated to use something called the Supplier Performance Risk System in evaluating bids. For what this all means to contractors, we turn to Piliero Maza attorney Kevin Barnett. Kevin, good to have you back.
3: Uh, Great to be back, Tom.
0: This rule, well, first of all, let's start with the Supplier Performance Risk System. There are a lot of these kinds of similar-sounding systems across the government. What is this one, and what is it assessing risk for?
3: So the Supplier Performance Risk System, it's a DOD database that itself is not new. It's DOD's authoritative source of supplier and product performance information. And it tries to evaluate and monitor suppliers, track corporate business practices, identify parts of the supply chain that may increase the risk of performance or the risk of counterfeit parts. And it's quite the multi-headed Hydra It has a supplier risk component where it generates a supplier risk score, it generates a price risk score, and an item risk score. And it gets inputs from all kinds of systems all over the government, from the CPRS system, the contractor performance rating system, to the self-assessments about your cyber capabilities, as well as other contract performance reports and alerts that the government may issue.
0: So it's a breath mint and a candy mint all wrapped in chocolate, you might say.
3: You could say that. And for, I think, some of the DOD contracting officers are using it. It is uh, that delightful mix of a little bit of everything.
0: Well, I guess the question then is, why did there need to be a rule in the DFAR causing contracting officers to use it? Why would they not use it in the first place to
3: evaluate bids? I think there have been instances where it has been used to evaluate bids, the new rule just puts everyone on notice that it must be used to evaluate bids. And that's pretty significant for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, the system generates a new risk score actually a new series of risk scores every single day. So the new rule is putting contractors on notice that You really need to stay on top of your risk scores that are being produced by this system if you want to be competitive in future DOD evaluations. It is also starting to bring to the forefront some of the cybersecurity regulations that have been percolating and in place for a number of years now. For many years, the supplier performance risk system, most contractors' exposure to it was the requirement to input their self-assessment of their compliance with NIST 800-171, which is the full breadth of you know best practices in cybersecurity. And it was just a go, no-go requirement. You need your evaluation in there. Now that these scores are actually going to be used in the evaluation, this is the first step, along with CMMC coming out later this summer, that cybersecurity is going to be considered in all DoD procurements.
0: And just to put a sharper point on this, it's not really a bid evaluation tool so much as a contractor evaluation tool, almost like third-party risk assessment done in the private sector. It doesn't look at your pricing or your delivery schedule or your labor costs or any of those technical requirements that might be in the solicitation, but it looks at you as a company, correct?
3: I would actually say it looks at both of those things instead of looking at the schedule and information that you put in your proposal, what this is now bringing to bear very clearly is the company's history of performance. So if you have a history of delayed performance or have a history of providing products that have manufacturing issues or have noted vulnerabilities in your cybersecurity that have been identified on other contracts, It's going to be brought into this system and will be reflected in future evaluations.
0: Got it. We're speaking with Kevin Barnett of Piliero Maza. He's an attorney that specializes in these kinds of things. And in many ways, then, it sounds as if it operates almost like a credit score with rules and things changing daily.
3: That's a great way to compare it. It's uh, three different credit scores for three different aspects of a company's performance with respect to a certain product or service that they're offering.
0: And the environment changes a lot, too. And it seems like that's something that suppliers have to keep up with. What I mean specifically is that you mentioned special publication 800 from NIST. That's about to undergo a major revision. It's out for yes. comments now. So when those are in and the final version comes out probably sometime in the fall, then That's a whole exercise companies are going to have to do to make sure they are compliant or following the new guidelines in 171.
3: Absolutely. This is going to hold them accountable for maintaining compliance with the latest cybersecurity. It's also going to hold them accountable for maintaining the best supply chain risk management practices, because all of that goes into these scores. Um, If you're using suppliers that have been identified as risky suppliers or have history of supplying counterfeit parts, You know, that's going to negatively impact your score going forward.
0: And a big problem with some of these systems over the years has been supplier recourse if they feel they are flagged unfairly in some aspect of their business, pricing or delivery or quality, whatever it might be. And can things be changed on appeal that are in this particular system?
3: The technical answer is yes. The SPRS system has a challenge process where you can look in your score, identify some record that has been entered for consideration that's negatively impacting your score and challenge it. It's kind of an automated process, pops up, you write an email, they say you need to provide objective quality evidence to dispute it. I don't know what that means, except perhaps DOD likes another opportunity to create an acronym. The give and take of that process though, it's unclear. It's really DOD gets to give you a thumbs up, thumbs down, deny or accept your challenge. And contractor's recourse or at least intermediate recourse seems to be limited.
0: And what is the actual limit of the obligation on the contracting officer if they're asked to consider the supplier performance risk system, SPRS? Do they have to follow necessarily if one bid is better on a price and delivery front, but the lesser of the two bids has a better rating in the SPRS? Are they obligated to pick that one?
3: No. Well, I don't know. The new final rule is very clear. Contractors must consider this information and it must consider each of the three scores that are produced, the price risk score, the item risk score, and the supplier risk score. But how exactly that is used in comparison with the other evaluation criteria is not clear. I think this is going to be a fruitful area for a lot of uh, clever bid protest arguments Coming up in the future for exactly that reason is you have a must use without a how to use requirement.
0: Now, increasingly, some social types of impositions have been put on suppliers and that's accelerated during this administration on their energy usage and their carbon footprint, if they can even figure that out, what they're doing on DEI, their labor practices. Are those part of the SPRS yet?
3: They do not appear to be explicitly part of the SPRS yet. I could see, you know, those issues percolating their way up, you know, as part of the CPAR score, as those become requirements of the contract and contractors fall short of those. They could get a bad CPAR rating, which is then flipped into the SPRS rating. But as of now, there are no explicit requirements for some of those more progressive administration goals.
0: Well, let's wait a minute, you know, and maybe it's going to happen eventually. But in the meantime, the best recourse for contractors then is mind your P's and Q's.
3: Absolutely. Mind your P's and Q's. Stay on top of your daily risk score. Know where those inputs are coming from and challenge it with, you know, your objective quality evidence. It's interesting. One of the most of the comments or a large number of the comments on the proposed rule, which now became a final rule were various contractors questioning the inputs, saying, well, this system is known for faulty, unreliable reports, or that system can easily be manipulated. And the general response from the agency, from DOD, was, no, we're going to use it in in only this minimal way that mitigates those concerns. So the skeptic in me doesn't necessarily trust those assurances, but there is that challenge opportunity for what that's worth.
0: Attorney Kevin Barnett of Piliero Maza, thanks so much.
3: Thank you,
0: Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his analysis at federalnewsnetwork dot com slash federal drive. Hear the Federal Drive on Demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this IRS tech executive has definite plans in mind for some of that modernization funding. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Enterprise Digitalization Office at the IRS is maybe mildly excited about the tens of billions of dollars Congress authorized in that Inflation Reduction Act. What really gets Harrison Smith, though, the office's director and his team going, is the digitalization initiative itself. Federal News Network's Jason Miller and I caught up with Smith at a recent ACT-IAC conference. He talked about how one project, the Digital Intake Initiative, is demonstrating what's possible in the near term.
4: Taking paper returns, paper tax returns, extracting machine-readable data from those paper tax returns, and then ultimately e-filing them. This is an activity that we started last year, and true to our form, we started in a very uh, small and a very targeted in a very limited fashion. Um, It was successful. I will tell you, it was difficult. We ran into wrinkles that we expected, ran into wrinkles that we didn't expect, and ultimately continued to learn and scale. And now this year, I believe that we're at north of 120 times, so not 120% increase, but 120x over what we did last year. And so again, expanding that to different types of forms, expanding that to other data fields um, has been an area where we continue to support, but ultimately that'll be uh, a space for another office to to continue to scale and to grow. We're just not built a resource that way, and that's okay, it's intentional, but it's an exciting space around digital intake.
0: In other words, you read forms
4: Mm -hmm. that might be handwritten. Correct, some of them are handwritten, some of them are typed, a lot of different places.
0: Just to detail, the Postal Service has been reading handwriting for a couple of decades now. Anything from there that helped you at all?
4: We actually tried to learn as best we could from from myriad approaches. So one of the the underpinnings of this approach uh, to this technology was simply I went to extract machine-readable data from images and from, from items so we could look at handwriting. We could look at what people did with OCR. We could look at what people did with training, with template-based activities. So we talked to the VA. Um, I'm not sure if we ever talked directly to this postal service, but obviously we engage with them quite a bit with the mail that we get.
0: Well, they have numbers on their stuff
4: Precisely. Too. And don't forget, they also have some of the barcodes as well. Um, so, but uh, it's an interesting space. And I think the reason we focused so much on what what the challenge was, because we didn't want to prescribe to industry what was the outcome. We didn't want to prescribe what the solution was. We wanted to say, here is our challenge. We want to be able to extract that data uh, and and move forward and process it. So it was very very helpful.
5: Harrison, I'll jump in and and kind of give Tom the the, the follow-up on that. As you said, you ran into some wrinkles that you expected. You Mm -hmm. ran into some wrinkles that you didn't expect. Can you talk a little bit about what were some of those wrinkles and how did you uh, overcome sure, them?
4: Sure. So here's, here's one of my favorite examples. So if, if you're an e-filer and you submit something uh, that doesn't have a zip code, right, you haven't put your zip code in, you will not be able to submit it, right? <laughs> it'll say error and it'll kick back out. Uh, but paper has a different set of rules. And so you're sort of straddling the paper rules and the e-file rules. And obviously, there's a very strict set of criteria that Ken Corbin and his team at Wage and Investment, uh, as well as Jeff King, the CIO, uh, that they process and make sure that everything's secure. But you've got to figure out a way, if somebody submitted a paper return that didn't have a zip code, do it, they don't return it to them, right? I got to figure out a way to manage that. Uh, and so there's a technology conversation around some of the business rules about how things get worked. But there's also a business process rule, right? Because if it's coming in, in paper there's a designated space for where those types of uh, items get identified. But because it's a different process and because it's a different space, uh, you've got to make sure you piece those together. So the zip code is is a perfect example.
5: The other thing I just want to clarify a little bit on is you said the amount that you did last year was 120 times larger. So so can you clarify what that, what do you mean by that? So I, I say 120x, more. More this year More. than last year. So where you took in one, now you took in 120. That's correct. All right. Because math, you know, we're talking about writers who... who you're going to have to take off your shoes probably yeah, to count ex- this one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well,
0: there's absolute numbers and then there's percentages. So.
5: That's why I always had to say 120x, right? Because the percentages mean, you know... So this is one good example. The, the other piece around the eight, the 79. 79.xxx billion that you guys potentially would be getting mm-hmm. eventually, maybe one day. Does the, some of that also fall into... The workforce side of this, and are you starting to kind of talk about the workforce in terms of how do you ensure the workforce is ready for some of these changes that are coming? Again, whether or not you get $79 billion or not. To be honest, Jason, I think there's, there's a, people who are
4: a lot more well-versed in, in kind of that uh, that strategy around around the human capital. David Aiton, obviously, he's the human capital officer, uh, are, are pursuing that and supporting those needs. Um, I think the space where we really play um, uh, in supporting the innovation areas is is how do we enable that, that set of activities, right? Whether or not it's improving an internal IRS business process or how do we uh, improve the, the taxpayer experience ultimately. So um, it's definitely a place where uh, what we're really trying to do is improve uh, how we manage and, and, uh, and support those processes. Uh, but ultimately, it, it's a very ambitious and a a great opportunity for the IRS. And I know that we're all, everybody's behind it and is ready to push hard and and support it and say, hey, this is what we've done. We've been effective um, and really moved through this process.
0: And when you embark on a project that is bringing in new technology, Mm -hmm. new ways to digitize, and then you say eventually if it works, that's the one that scales. How do you interact with the CIO operation? Because at some point it has to become a system of record Mm -hmm. and it has to come under different budgeting maybe. And so how do you How do you cross that valley of death to the CIO operation and the ATO operation?
4: The most immediate answer is you talk really early and you ask questions really early. Um, It's something where, as I talked about uh, on the fireside chat, it's solve other people's problems, right? And so you don't want to get into a space where you've got that gap, where you haven't talked the, uh, to the CIO, or you haven't talked to the records folks in PGLD, Kathleen Walters and that team, how do you make sure that you're stitching that together so that you don't have that delay? And ultimately, one of the interesting answers to the question is that because of the approach that we've taken with Pilot IRS and similar procurements, it allows us to say, hey, here are a handful of opportunities and a handful of solutions, which works best for us. And one of the people that we ask in addition to the users is, hey, IT, which is the easiest one for you? How do we manage that activity? And when we're open and upfront about that with the industry partners, um, I think they see it as as a reasonable and and standard approach to how we do things.
0: Because they have some big challenges that are taking up a lot of resources that they have started at over and over and over. And I'm talking to you, Master File System, and that's not really a digitization effort, but it seems like it would enable a lot of them
4: yeah and I think that's that 's the space where we 're understanding how some of these different approaches because I think that 's one of the misconceptions about uh, about innovation and, and and doing something different. There are spaces and opportunities where it's the right time and the right set of data and the right use case to pursue, because you don't start with the most complicated one, even if it's got the greatest ROI. You start with the simplest one that you can figure out the best, the, the most clear set uh, and most actionable uh, information as early on as possible. So you don't want to start with the elephant and try to swallow the whole thing, right? You want to find out how does this particular item, how, if we're successful, how does it scale into other challenges and other problems? And that's really, that's really the magic sauce, so to speak.
5: Harrison, we focused on the, the, the big chunk of money that potentially the IRS will get. Let me just take us uh, maybe out a little bit. Mm-hmm. The enterprise digitization project, the, the work you guys have been doing over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things you're working on today outside of that or including in that $80 billion, What are some of your priorities or, or projects and what kind of capabilities are you, are you trying to deliver to the IRS th- through the work you do every day?
4: Yeah, so we already talked a little bit about the digital intake, which um, I'm certainly super proud of, but what I'm most proud of is how the team is engaged with the partners and the stakeholders. Uh, I think the business of innovation is, is difficult, uh, it requires change, it requires trust, uh, and so we really say what I, what I mean when I say that is the manner in which they've engaged. We have cultural principles, and while I don't go into all of them, I think there's a particular one that's, that's very important here be pro digitalization, not anti status quo, uh, and ultimately to be kind. This is difficult work, like, this is hard. And everyone is very passionate about the mission. But changing how we perceive things and what we are willing to try and how we're willing to try that requires kindness and focusing on what we can do, not lamenting on how we got here. So there's that really that partnership and that conversation which ultimately enables and fosters more innovation. The best way to identify if, uh, if something is working, if something is resonating with folks, is when more and more people ask about it and more and more people wanna pursue it. And that's the really great space that we're in right now. We've been supporting other teams and they've said, hey, can we do this again? And that's a great space to me because it means that it's resonating with them and it's allowing them to perform their job in a more effective and efficient fashion. And if we're doing that, it's a home run.
0: Harrison Smith is director of the Enterprise Digitalization Office at the IRS. Find this and more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Veterans Benefits Administration hopes to accelerate its use of automation tools this summer to help keep pace with its workload and set new records on the number of claims it can process in a year. Increased automation is at the center of VBA's five-year automation plan. But despite its best efforts, VBA anticipates a surge in new benefits claims is going to lead to an uptick in that backlog. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. So it sounds like they're really paddling against the current here with a new paddle, though, and these new tools. What are they looking to install here, Jory?
6: Yeah, a couple things are in the works here. VBA is processing claims faster than ever, but it's also getting more claims than ever, thanks in part to the Toxic Exposure PACT Act is really adding to their workload here. So to keep going with this increased output here, what they're trying to do is try to roll out smart search tools uh, later this summer that will make it easier for VBA employees to search through a veteran's file, pull up things like medical exams and their military service records so that they can skip through those steps more quickly and ultimately go through the claim and give that thumbs up or thumbs down decision on the benefits claim. They're also looking to roll out some automated data ingestion tools that would pre-populate some of the fields in a a given application that they have to work on. Right now, it's pretty modest. It's a browser extension on Google Chrome, and, and eventually they're looking to add it as a permanent feature of the Veterans Benefits Management System, the overall kind of engine that drives so much of their work.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like they also need an upgrade in the IT underlying all of these tools. Are they working on that also?
6: Absolutely, automation is just one piece of the puzzle with their broader modernization agenda over at VBA. One other thing in the works here is they're looking to modernize their national work queue, which is the system that batches claims to the agency's 16 regional offices all across the country. It through some algorithm work, it assigns uh, a number of claims to each office based on the number of employees that they have, and what they're trying to do is modernize that in such a way that VBA employees are not standing idle once they've completed their workload for the day. The way it typically works now is they have to go back to their supervisor and say, hey, I finished what was on my plate and I'm ready for more. Then they have to find more cases for that employee to work on. So they're trying to reduce that downtime.
0: Got it. So they're not just using a cattle prod to get more productivity from the workforce, but they want to stage the work in a... Sounds like a more efficacious manner.
6: Yeah, yeah. They're just trying to reduce those handoffs, as the VA is is fond of saying in in kind of explaining the way they do business here. You know, VBA is also trying to get greater productivity from its workforce while managing burnout. Given everything that we're talking about here, VBA grew its workforce by about 15% over the last year and a half. They've been really aggressive with the hiring, as so much of VA has. They now have more than 28,000 employees across the country. One element of this, and this is familiar from some other reporting I've done, they had to roll out some mandatory overtime to deal with this caseload that they're dealing with. Last month, we heard from the new Undersecretary for Benefits, Joshua Jacobs. He is very aware of this mandatory overtime and its impact on the workforce in terms of burnout. So in July through the end of August, they're going to have a mandatory overtime respite for the workforce, just keeping in mind that it's also Uh, peak time for for vacation requests
0: interesting yeah that that idea of mandatory overtime just happens in a lot of agencies we just talked about it the other day at the passport office Uh, and so and we see it all across homeland security even health and human services and getting back to vba the benefits claims backlog what's the latest there
6: Yeah, well, just again, given the nature of the PACT Act and the new claims that are coming in, VBA set a record last year when it completed more than 1.7 million benefits claims. But so far in this fiscal year, in fiscal 2023, VBA has seen a 31% increase in the volume of new claims coming in. And we're still have a couple of months into the fiscal year here. So they are just dealing with this crushing workload. We recently heard from Raymond Telez, VA's acting assistant deputy undersecretary for automated benefits delivery, quite the mouthful there. But he told members of the House VA committee that these automation tools that we've been talking about, he's hoping that these automation tools are going to drive down the backlog within the next two years. But things are going to go up before they go down. We're factoring two years because of the sort of conservative approach that we are doing for automation.
5: Uh, Change is hard. Our employees have been through the last 10 years, some huge transformation. So we're being
6: very thoughtful.
0: All right he's being thoughtful. What about the VBA workforce? Are they thinking the same way about those tools?
6: Well, the House VA committee also heard from David Bump. He wears a couple of hats. He is a VBA authorization quality review specialist. He's also a national representative for the American Federation of Government Employees National VA Council. He says with all of this change going on, all these things in the works in terms of IT modernization, he really says that VBA employees need a greater seat at the table when the agency plans to roll out these new tools. He says that under the current process, he says that VBA employees often end up beta testing software and having to deal with some of the bugs and some of the usability problems once those new tools go live. Every time VBMS gets upgraded, there
4: are workarounds that result. And those workarounds, not only do you have to remember what all of them are, but they add to the time that it takes to process a claim. Because you have to, in some cases, manipulate VBMS. You have to manipulate the system to get it to provide the right result.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of keyboard shortcuts to memorize, I guess, Jory. And what does VBA say about that? Do they generally keep the union in the loop when they're planning upgrades or brand new applications to roll out?
6: Well, to who we heard from earlier, he did say that VBA does keep employees in the loop. They have regular calls with staff as these things are in the works and they do usability testing. They have employees, you know, kick the tires on things that are in the works. And so he says that there's certainly more opportunities to do that, but that is, you know, a regular practice of VBA to do all these things I will say, going back to those workarounds that Bump was mentioning, that is very familiar language to what we hear with the VA and their rollout of a new electronic health record, that there are workarounds they have to do with that system, and it is driving down productivity in that side of VA over at the Veterans Health Administration. Yeah,
0: that thing is one big workaround, I guess, for what people that would rather be using Vista, which they're familiar with and gets the job done, but we'll see how it goes there. And just to reiterate... The rise in backlogs and the number of caseloads that are coming in—that is as a result of the burn pit legislation, specifically, correct?
6: That is one of the key drivers here. And so, what Teles told lawmakers is that the backlog will probably peak around 400,000 cases sometime between now and 2024. And by the 2025 time frame, he expects that that backlog will drop dramatically and fall below 100,000 claims.
0: All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.